Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to the start of a brand new week here on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. It is Monday, November 8th, and uh, as we say virtually every week, there is just no slowing down of political news to talk about on this show, and certainly that is true today. We have a top-notch panel of journalists uh, to discuss the news, and so I want to get right to them and introduce them and begin our conversation. It's Monday, which means uh, Jim Galloway, Former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is with us. Jim, how you doing? I'm d- doing great. It's a wonderful, beautiful fall day. The dogs won. Yeah. The Falcons won. Atlanta United won. Uh, only yeah. a Tech fan could be disappointed. Yeah, yeah. Big week. Uh, big weekend for uh, uh, Georgia sports. Maybe, Jim, people uh, in the, on those teams inspired by the remarkable work of the Atlanta Braves winning the World Series. Um, Stephen Fowler is also with us today. He, of course, is political reporter for GPB News. Um, Stephen, you have a P- you just uh, did a long interview with Brad Raffensperger around his new book, and want to talk about that later in the show. In the meantime, how are you? Doing well, Bill. I just spent the last four days having no idea what was going on in Georgia politics to escape for a little birthday vacation, and now it is roaring back into my brain. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Uh, I'm not worried about you getting up to speed quickly at all, uh, Stephen. Um, Leroy Chapman, managing editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is back with us again. Leroy, before the show went on, we were all talking about the fact that you at the AJC had an unbelievably busy week last uh, week, putting out all your special editions, putting out a book about the Braves. Uh, You must be kind of glad that you had a long weekend. You had some kind of weekend's rest. Absolutely. Uh, It was uh, historic, and we sort of looked at the calendar to see that the mayoral election and Game 6 could fall on the same night, and we were like, uh, could this happen? And of course it did. (laughs) But it was great, and it's (laughs) something that you'll never forget. (laughs) We're glad you're back with us, and we're really happy to introduce for the first time on a Political Rewind panel, Emma Hurt, who is now a journalist with Axios Atlanta. Um, You have certainly heard her voice over the years as a political reporter at WABE before she moved on to Axios. Emma, because we always like to have just a moment to let our listeners know a little bit more about first-time panelists, I think I'm right, you grew up in Washington, D.C. And I think the on both sides, your mother's and father's side, there were journalists going back several generations. Is that correct? That is correct. I was the unoriginal uh, child who couldn't think of anything else to do. Um, and <laughs> journalism was in my blood on both sides of my family. My, my grandmother on my mom's side was a journalist and my grandfather on my dad's side and then both my parents as well. So um, come by it honestly, wish I was more creative, uh, but here we are. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, we all chose journalism because, you know, we couldn't think of anything that was uh, uh, something we could do better. So welcome to our (laughs) club. Hey, Emma, tell us a little bit about it. It's very exciting to have Axios setting up shop here in Atlanta. Many people who are really political junkies have followed that national newsletter for a long time. But now there's going to be this Georgia breakout edition. 
Yeah, Axios has made a big play in local markets all over the country. Just this year, in the last year, they're now in 14 cities and more to come next year. And, you know, I think they they see the value in investing in local news and are trying to kind of reverse the trend, um, looking around the country at local news dwindling. And they're not just, I think what's interesting is they're not just in you know, major metropolitan areas, you would assume. Like one of their first four cities was Northwest Arkansas, which is actually where mm. I had my first job. So it's close to my heart. But, you know, they're they're experimenting in different markets and really trying to invest in local media um, landscapes as well. All right. Well, we're so happy that you are with us uh, today. Um, Jim Galloway, I want to talk in a minute about the fact that Governor Kemp and Attorney General Chris Carr have expanded their fight against the Biden administration vaccine mandate. But to take us there, let's just recount where the state stands right now in terms of COVID-19. As of Friday, the Georgia Department of Public Health reports that Georgia has had 1,268,000-plus confirmed cases of COVID. There have now been 25,094 confirmed deaths and the state says another 4,000 or so, 4,300 or so probable deaths from COVID. 87,000 people have been hospitalized. And Jim, this move by um, Carr and Kemp to now file federal suit against the Biden mandate requiring companies with 100 employees or more to have their people either vaccinated or getting tested, it's kind of a soft mandate but the Kemp administration says it's federal overreach and they're fighting it. There are many suits right now. This is just the latest that Georgia is involved with. Right, right. Georgia, Georgia originally had, I mean, they had filed a, previously filed a, a suit challenging uh, uh, the, the requirement that federal contractors uh, uh, and their employees uh, be vaccinated or or, or submit to to weekly tests, uh, which and that was interesting because what it did was it it, it really drew out the connection between uh, Georgia's university system and the federal government and all those federal grants. It's it, it was uh, uh, I mean the, the the federal reach is pervasive through the, through those learning institutions. This one this one uh, goes to goes to businesses over with more than one hundred employees uh, and the mandate. For, from uh, from OSHA is that it uh, take effect January fourth. Now we've had a federal judge in the fifth uh, uh, in the fifth district put it on hold. That's not unusual, uh, and I think though the the, the arguments uh, the, the the federal government will make some arguments today, and and maybe we'll have uh, we'll, we'll know by the end of this week whether that that uh, it, it will it will move quickly up the ladder. Yeah, Stephen, the Labor Department. Um uh, the Biden Labor Department, of course, says that they they believe they're on completely firm ground here, that OSHA uh, certainly has the right to um, create uh, rules that are for uh, uh, safety in the workplace. Um, I heard it this weekend compared to the fact that some workers in their particular jobs are required to wear hard hats on, on the job site uh, because of the possible dangers there. So um, OSHA and the Labor Department certainly feel that these lawsuits may be troubling but are unlikely to gain any uh, real uh, traction. Right. And that's where, you know, there was another piece that came out this morning in The New York Times that said that since the advent of vaccines, the real politicization of the impact of COVID has been stark. Uh, and I believe I've got it pulled up here that 
there are, you know, more of the deaths are coming from places that voted more Republican than places that are Democratic. And that's been something that's come up since vaccines. But the OSHA rules and the fights over it, the lawsuits that are being filed in Georgia and other places really are a test of the federal oversight that we have and the different laws and rules that states have. I mean, the Biden administration, like you said, is comparing it to saying you have to have a hard hat in some places, um, you know, seatbelts, something else that, you know, there are different rules and requirements for. But uh, the holdup in court right now is a procedural one. And so it will be interesting to see how uh, the courts rule on all of these different lawsuits that are coming out. But one thing that's interesting to me, Bill, is like, is how little is talked about the other part of this mandate. Everyone's talking about getting vaccines and the other is or weekly testing. And, you know, uh, that might not be something that's so odious and it might be the thing that might end up to be saving the, the so-called mandate because there is that option of just having testing if you don't want to get the vaccine. Um, you know, uh, uh, Emma, there are people, uh, even some Democrats, who are a little concerned. I mean, I think public safety is driving mo- most of the Democratic opinion around this. But there are some who worry this is part of a larger piece in which uh, President Biden is being attacked on all fronts uh, for his intrusiveness on, on the vaccine. And, and there are those who believe it had something to do with his drop in the approval rating. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to call it like it is, that this is pretty good politics for Republicans um, to be in this position. And also it does, you know, it does fit in with especially Governor Kemp's approach in the last year and a half, um, all the way back to ending lockdown early, refusing mask mandates. It's all about personal choice. And that's exactly what this lawsuit is about. And I mean, it was even how Kemp messaged how Kemp messages still um, talking in rooms about vaccines to, to people. He says, this is your choice. You and your doctor should decide. I think it's a good idea, but I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm the government. You decide for yourself. So it really fits in with that um, track record. And it also positions Kemp well as, you know, I think we've seen him do this repeatedly back to the good politics point um, as kind of a foil on the national stage to Biden. Um, we saw it with the voting law. And so it, it is um, it, it does make political sense as well beyond, you know, the legal arguments that they are making. Leroy. Yeah, uh, certainly there is a political calculation here. And uh, looking at some of the things that we've seen lately, uh, it probably is a smart one for Republicans. But thinking about this also, just practically what we'll be looking at is uh, when you talk about more than 100 employees, uh, these are small businesses, and it does capture a large share of Georgia, but still it uh, does not touch uh, a lot of small businesses because there are most are more, uh, less fewer than 100 employees, many are sole proprietorships when you talk about small business. So when the, the narrative goes to this being uh, onerous on small business, um, you know, there is uh, something to be said about uh, really who, who it's targeting now and who can do it. I think the other part of this, too, that we can't forget is that part of these part of this is also health care. Uh, we're still wrestling with health care workers being vaccinated, and part of this would address that. So if we're talking about containment, uh, that's really one of the things, too, that's, uh, that's uh, on a very practical level. If we debate whether or not it is overreach, uh, the legal aspects of it, the practical part of it is that uh, this 
there is an argument that this is certainly vitally needed and that it may not be as onerous as some of the politics might make you believe. Jim. Yeah, it's uh, look, I think short term, I think Republicans are I mean, this is a, this is a, 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 a very politic move by Republicans and it puts them, you know, puts them a kind of uh, as uh, as Emma said, it puts them forward uh, as as kind of uh, the, the, the leaders of the anti Biden effort. But to build on something that Stephen said that 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 New York Times report that's out this morning, I'd, I'd encourage people to read it. Uh, but basically, it said that you had the, the, the death rate in Trump, uh, 60% Trump counties was 25 per 100,000. The, the death rate for Biden, 60% uh, counties was 7.8. Three times as many people are dying in pro-Trump counties as in, as in uh, pro-Biden counties. And you, and you have to wonder how that statistic might play out in 2022 uh, because Democrats are not going to leave that alone. That's 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 going to be part of their messaging. And, you know, I think to add some facts here on the politics, Axios did a poll recently about this, and it was six in 10 employed Americans who were in favor of employee uh, employer mandates. Six in 10 is not, you know, a vast majority. That's still pretty close to five, right? Um there was no consensus in that poll about what should be the punishment. But I think what is also interesting on top of that is that where mandates have already been um, opted into by employers, we've seen that they kind of work. Like there hasn't been much pushback without, with except, you know, some exceptions. But um, looking at the private companies that have already opted to do that so far, they have kind of worked. Just some facts here yeah. on, on our political. <laughs> I'm really glad you said that. I mean, for instance, United Airlines, which was the first uh, major carrier to put a mandate in place, uh, says they've had 99% of their employees now uh, vaccinated, which uh, goes to your uh, point, uh, Emma. And, you know, in, in the way that Delta, Stephen, handled this in a, in a, a different and maybe more creative way by uh, establishing a surcharge of $200 a month for employees and their health care policies if they choose not to be uh, vaccinated. And they claim, they claim they've had enormous success in getting their employees vaccinated, even though they've taken a slightly different approach. Right. And I have friends and close family that work at Delta, and it is something that works. You know, framing the conversation around vaccination as something that affects your bottom line might be antagonistic, but putting it on the health care costs, and Delta has explained, I believe, that the average COVID case has cost the Delta thousands and thousands of dollars in healthcare costs, but also lost productivity time, you know, because you're not just out for a day, take some medicine, and then come back to work the next day feeling better. And so it is really underscoring beyond the political divisiveness over vaccines and beyond the thoughts about things, but really framing it from you know, we as an employer need you to be healthy so you can do your job, and this is the best way for you to do your job, has been really, really effective. I still know people that work at Delta that have not yet gotten the vaccine and that have seen that surcharge a couple times and are really weighing their options and saying, do I want to keep paying $200 and wear a mask every time I go do this job, or do I want to get the vaccine have the time to recover if I have side effects and don't feel well, and then come back to work like normal. And for a lot of people, it's working. 
Okay, so I'm about to defy the uh, very uh, uh, common uh, trial attorney mandate. Never ask a question you don't know the answer to. I'm curious, if any of you wants to just raise your hand, when, when the state of Georgia files a lawsuit in the interests of private business, do they have standing to file on behalf of private companies? In other words, is this likely to really go anywhere in federal court, or is it largely a political maneuver? Jim Galloway, you know the answer to that? Uh, they've got it. They've, uh, if I'm not mistaken, and, and Emma or Stephen or, or Leroy can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, they've got a, a, a couple of, of, of uh, protagonists, I think at least one a trucking company, uh, a couple of a couple of businesses uh, that are working with them as as kind of stand-ins to give them that 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 foothold in the court. Thank you. I didn't. Yes. Is is it? A, oh, it is. Okay. Thank you. I wasn't yeah. aware mm-hmm. of that at all. I'm, I I appreciate that, Leroy. Uh, no, yeah, I just wanted to re- reiterate that too. Uh, th- that's one thing that's been that's been covered. I think uh, in thinking about and plotting this uh, this strategy, uh, that's one of the things that they they did. And I think, too, that's going to come through in the politics. So my prior point, too, about small business, uh, if you look at the practicality of it, but also look at, you know, how it's going to be applied, whether or not it's too onerous. Uh, When you think about the politics of it, being able to try small business out to say that this is a mandate that uh, will will hurt business at a critical time in our economy, that's going to continue to be part of what's what's happening politically. But I think legally, uh, yeah, they're on pretty sound footing, probably. Uh, so with all that said, I think one of the things that we'll be watching as a newspaper, too, is, um, you know, the, the thing that we talked about earlier, like with Delta, others, uh, there are folks in Georgia who are actually doing this and not doing it. And I think the, uh, you know, being able to see what the outcomes are thus far uh, on a voluntary basis uh, would be telling as well. Okay. Um, before we move on, uh, let me just ask you, Emma, and then you, Stephen, uh, to weigh in on this. Um this is another one of those uh, issues that a Brian Kemp and a Chris Carr uh, can embrace in their effort to win a Republican primary. Uh, right now, uh, you know, we don't have any idea whether uh, uh, Brian Kemp is going to end up with a legitimate con- uh, uh, opponent like, say, oh, David Perdue, which we can talk about if we want to. But the question is going to be, as your Axios poll points out, at least nationally, Emma, when you're running for uh, uh, office in a general election, the uh, the public seems much more inclined to be supportive of vaccine mandates than to oppose them the way that Republican candidates do. I mean, I think it's definitely this is a this is a primary uh, a primary electorate uh, play, you could say, um, and and both Governor Kemp and Chris Carr have some weaknesses here because of how the 2020 election went. Chris Carr literally defended the election system against President Trump um, in the courts. And Governor Kemp, as we know, uh, did as well in his in uh, in his role. So so it, it does make sense that these two uh, national uh, state Republicans would would want to put their names on this. Um, they would argue, of course, that this is their uh, duty to defend the Constitution and defend people's rights. But it's a it's a primary play. I think we can we can safely assume. Yeah, Stephen, want to give you the last word on this before we take our first break? 
this is also something, Bill, that's an opportunity for Republican primary candidates to get back to policies. Uh, a lot of the primary electorate has been driven by feelings and not facts, especially when it comes to the election and how these Republicans handled the election. And the lawsuit and the governor's stances on vaccines and on the way the federal government interacts with state government and different things like that is a way to kind of pull the electorate back towards reality a little bit and talk about why Republican leadership and Republican policies are necessary to protect against a Democratic agenda in Washington. Okay, well, thank you all for uh, this conversation. Let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way and come back with a lot more on today's Political Rewind. Emma Hurt of Axios Atlanta, Leroy Chapman, Managing Editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Jim Galloway, formerly of the AJC, and Stephen Fowler. By the way, Stephen, I, I apologize to you. When I introduce you, I should also make note of the fact that you have restarted a podcast that you did with great success during the 2020 election, a Battleground Ballot Box, which uh, people can download can get as a, a podcast wherever they get their podcasts. It's also on our on our GPB website, I assume, somewhere, Stephen. Yes, that is correct. We are restarting the podcast because there is no shortage of political news. And uh, this week we will be tackling the latest in redistricting. Okay, so uh, look for Battleground Ballot Box. Um, Jim, uh, Friday night, finally, after infighting that some people think contributed to uh, the loss of Virginia governor's mansion, uh, Terry McAuliffe's loss. The Democrats finally, uh, with the support of 13 Republicans, were able to pass what had been a bipartisan infrastructure bill when it went through the United States Senate. And let me just quickly uh, point out some of the benefits that Georgia will get out of this bill to set up our conversation. According to Senator Ossoff's office, they say that Georgia is in line to get $1.3 $1.3 billion for development of public transit, $100 million for broadband, $135 million for charging stations for electric vehicles, $225 million for bridge repair and rebuilding, and something like $600-plus million for airports. The point being, Jim, whether you live in a Republican or a Democratic district in the state of Georgia, you are likely to see... Uh, some uh, uh, real uh, benefits from the money that the uh, House has finally passed. Yeah, I am, and I'm actually very interested in seeing how the the broadband money will play out, uh, because that's that's probably that's one of the more serious infrastructure problems in in, in rural Georgia. This is going to give uh, Democrats in Georgia uh, something to talk about, something to, to point to, uh, uh, and. Uh, one thing worse of the 13 uh, members of the U.S. House that voted for that uh, on Friday, I don't think any were from Georgia. Uh, no, in we, fact, the, the, in, the Georgia delegation split entirely on partisan lines. Right, and, and in fact, I think you had Marjorie Taylor Greene calling uh, the Republic, Republicans who 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 went the, went in that bipartisan direction. She referred to them as traitors. Uh, which is rather tough, tough language, but uh, something that you could probably expect in, in a GOP primary. Um, in fact, there was a lot of pushback, and I'll, I'll talk about that in just a minute, a lot of pushback from Republicans 
leaders uh, about the, the Republicans who crossed over to vote for this bill. And of course, they also were able to use this to attack Democrats uh, in general. By the way, uh, Emma, one of the other projects that's particularly noteworthy for people who listen to our show in uh, uh, outside of Metro Atlanta, um, Sanford Bishop, of course, who's the congressman down in the sef- second district, is celebrating the fact that there's going to be money earmarked for the proposed Interstate 14, which is a thoroughfare, an interstate from Columbus to Augusta that people think will be enormously important uh, for commerce. Uh, and, and people in that whole broad swath of the state, Emma. I mean, it's a big, it's a big deal. Like Jim said, this gives them something else to talk to. I, I remember I spoke with a voter um, last week who was really a Democratic voter who was feeling really frustrated because he was just like all this time, and we got what one bill to show for it, referring to the COVID <laughs> relief of last spring. I mean. It's an exaggeration, but that was his assessment of it, and he was really frustrated. Why do we all have to care about what this guy Mansion in West Virginia is thinking? So, so this um, and you know, infrastructure, as you as you've outlined, um, allows so much for Democrats to speak to at the local level. So it's a huge deal. Now, if you know, the Senate we next, were, but. <laughs> yeah, well, sure, but but the Senate is already. We'll see, it'll be interesting to see if it comes back after the enormous infighting among progressive and moderate Democrats over this bill uh, played against the social policy agenda bill, which is which they've now been given an assurance. The reason they were able to reach a compromise on this, Stephen, is that the progressives were who are saying, no, we're not going to pass infrastructure unless we get the much larger social policy bill. They've now been assured they had a procedural vote, which kind of lines that up for a vote by the middle of the month or beyond that. But as, but as um, Emma points out, this first, this infrastructure bill has to pass the Senate again in its new form. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, they're two separate pieces of legislation, but they've really been crafted, uh, duct taped, however you want to describe it, as complementary that have to go hand in hand. I believe Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said the other day that you can't have one without the other. So there's a lot of maneuvering that's had to go into getting enough votes there. I mean, there's been some criticism of the progressives that voted against the bill and the Republicans that voted for the bill. But I think, you know, you were able to have those progressives be able to vote against the bill because of the Republicans that voted for it. Uh, And there's just been a lot of gamesmanship going on to get these bills together. But one thing I'll be interested in looking at in Georgia as well as nationally is how many politicians that voted against the infrastructure bill will then tout money that goes to their districts uh, into what's being proposed. Because the bill, I mean, because the infrastructure bill, both of these bills don't only go to Republicans that voted for it and Democrats that voted for it. It benefits everyone. So it'll be interesting to see what gets taken credit for uh, when somebody voted against it, because I think there have been some other congressmen that have put out statements saying that they oppose this bill because of all of the spending, because they want to focus on roads and bridges and other things that are mentioned in the bill. So it, it'll be interesting to see how the politics of that plays out. Leroy, one of the things in reading the coverage and watching the coverage of this over the weekend <clears throat> that struck me was how naked the Republican political opposition to this bill has been. There was, you know, yes, there were some who said we can't afford the price tag and that sort of thing. But uh, 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 Kevin McCarthy included essentially said 
Why would you give Joe Biden a victory after he was on the ropes because of the Virginia gubernatorial race? And um, I, I, the nakedness of that political uh, position on this was striking to me. Well, we're in a time now where you can say the things out loud that sometimes you, you, you wouldn't say years ago. <laughs> so, you know, we are divided. Uh, people pay more attention to the sausage making and, in fact, put a lot more stock in the sausage making than the, the, the product. And if you really think about what this is, it's potentially generational impact uh, in a state like Georgia that is uh, comparatively poor uh, when you think about its rural areas versus its uh, urban areas. Uh, you think about brown, uh, what broadband can do. Uh, we've got a, a ports money that, that's been uh, earmarked. Uh, you think about the public transportation and interstates, uh, too. I mean, it is money that uh, is, has the potential to be transformative in places that really need this money. Many of those, ironically, are Republican-leaning or very, very much uh, Republican through and through. Uh, and what they're hearing and the messaging is that uh, although it may be good for you, uh, it, it's bad for politics uh, on a certain level, and you, you still have that, that tension. So one of the things that we'll be doing is following uh, really the impact. So I don't know what the conversation is going to be uh, once we get to 2022. Uh, I suspect that you won't see many of this stuff rolling out because it's going to take a while for it to actually have impact. So we'll still be talking about it in theory. Uh, but again, it's, it's one of those things where you've got voters who uh, will sometimes, uh, it's, it's about party loyalty and the, the tribalism of Washington and instead of the, the issue that we've got now, which is the real impact of what uh, policy can do to help people. So, Jim, let me let's expand upon this notion that, you know, uh, people complain about the spending unless it affects their districts. I mean, that's been true in politics for decades. Cut spending, but make sure my district continues to get what it needs. But here's an example of this. Drew Ferguson uh, gave a quote to Tia Mitchell, um, your former colleague at the AJC, in which he said, don't people realize, don't Democrats or don't, doesn't the public realize that this is merely the infrastructure bill, a Trojan horse for passing the social policy uh, bill, which of course is, you know, who knows, it was 3.5, now it's nowhere near that many trillions of dollars. But what's ironic, of course, about that, Jim, is that some of this money will go to help the people in his district with this new interstate highway, which will expand commerce between Columbus and Augusta. Right, and 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 one one uh, one uh, might predict that uh, the one of the people at the ribbon cutting, if that if that should happen, will be Congressman Drew Ferguson, uh, if un unless he is he is seeking he, is, he decides to seek a higher office. Uh, I think you know the the, the one. What, what I think is most interesting here, uh, Bill, is that once Joe Biden signed that bill, the infrastructure bill, it was uh, we've gone maybe three, four, five, maybe five days now without really hearing uh, much about uh, Joe Manchin or Kristen Sinema, uh, who, who were the 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 the, uh, the two uh, Democrats holding up uh, the the social social infrastructure uh, side of side of this two trillion dollars now, uh, but uh, I think that's going to be a very interesting fight because what we saw last week, I, th I think progressives. On the, in, in the the progressive wing of the Democratic Party saw that its power had was limited, 
that it that it's that it that that there was a line that they could not go past without hurting the party as as a whole. And I'm wondering where, where that line will move over the next six weeks. Yeah, well, we'll watch that unfold. Emma, I do want to issue one correction. It looks like I was wrong. I got confused with the social policy bill, but I, I the infrastructure bill goes straight to Biden's desk, so that's on me for saying. Wait, oh, that that's right, it does because yeah, the House yeah. did not change it substantially. Uh, I yes. was I was confused about that as well. Thank you for uh, thank you, Emma. Uh, guess what? <laughs> uh, people people who listen to the show are used to uh, hearing about all the mistakes. I make. I'm glad to have an occasional uh, uh, <laughs> panelist join me in that. But thank you for correcting that. That's absolutely right. Uh, okay. Um, go ahead. And I was just going to say, I mean, as we think about this, uh, po- you know, polarization and sort of this purity test of don't vote for this infrastructure bill because it would give Biden a win. I just can't ha- stop thinking about how we're in the middle of redistricting. And it is the district lines that are drawn that elect people to the Congress who have increasingly um, developed these, you know, quite polarized positions. And here we are looking at 10 more years of, of what, what is to come. We'll see. It's in the line. We will also see whether or not uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi can work out uh, enough of a deal, get enough of her members on board to actually take a vote on this social policy agenda, which the Biden administration considers so important. They made a commitment that they take it up by November 15th. We'll see how that uh, uh, moves forward, if at all. Hey, speaking of redistricting, um, Stephen, not a lot of new information in many ways down at the Capitol, except the headline is that in over, with just three days having introduced their map of the Senate, uh, a Senate committee has already voted out their new uh, district lines in the state Senate. Um, Democrats are howling that it happened before they had any real chance to study the map. They claim that the Senate committee put it out while everybody's attention was focused on the Braves parade. And um, the response really, and the response on this show on Friday from Democrats as well as our um, you know political analysts was, well, you know, that's right. Republicans control the process. So it's not even maybe worth talking about the fact they're going to move fast at all this. Well, yes and no. What certainly helps is that the Georgia Senate Republicans didn't actually change that much from how the maps currently are. Um, They did tweak the proposal slightly from when it was introduced Tuesday. Uh, There was some slight shifting of precincts that took Dobbins Air Force Base from one Democratic district to another. But uh, by and large, for the most part, you know, the new Georgia Senate, likely Georgia Senate maps at this point, uh, doesn't really change that much from the existing structure, which I guess if you're a Democrat is good on one hand because it doesn't add Republican seats. But on the other hand, the way Georgia's population has shifted and changed in the last decade, people were expecting maybe a couple more Democratic districts to be put together. So, it, you know, th- there has been public comment. We've looked, there have been 750 comments on the online portal that has been open for several months over the summer. Hundreds of people have spoken across the state. And so far, it seems like the only people that are okay with this Georgia Senate map are the eight or nine Republicans that voted for it in the committee. But those are the ones that matter. Um, Leroy, uh, the fact of the matter is that Republicans will have their way with these maps. Now, there may be pushback uh, from voters. 
Uh, it's possible next fall. We know that back when uh, Roy Barnes uh, created a, uh, a, a very, very uh, pro-democratic, strange map, uh, there were many people who uh, decided that that was one of the reasons they'd vote against him, that he was uh, exercising partisan political muscle in a way that wasn't of benefit to the people of the state. You never can tell how these things are going to play out in an election year. Yeah, and that's that's great to point out because uh, you've got the party in power who has to to walk a line. And I know my friend Jim Galloway, who's been around to see this a couple of times, uh, can attest to the fact that once you, you know, that you have to, I guess there's an, an incentive for you as the party in power to certainly make sure you hold on to it. But if it does look too aggressive, it, it certainly can have an impact at the ballot box. And you begin looking at uh, the state and where political power rests and where there's a, a genuine battleground. Uh, that is some risk. But all that said, I think there is also expediency and there is a right now element to that. Uh, the demographics of the state will continue to shift. And whatever map that we've got now, um, w- whether that advantage holds is really the big question. And uh, there's probably, if you look at some of the projections, uh, there's something that's immediate. But uh, will it hold? Well, the demographics will tell you that. Jim? Uh- yeah, the uh, uh, right now what we know of the, the 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 state house and state senate maps are that that the changes aren't quite as drastic as what we might have seen in that uh, is what we've seen in, in other in other states such as Texas. Uh, there is a there there is some uh, but what, what what I find interesting you can find it especially in the house map both chambers they're they're conceding uh, uh, that they're going to have to draw. Some extra Democratic seats, but it's it's only in the one, two, or three margins. Nothing that's going to threaten uh, either, uh, the the party's uh, majority in in uh, in either chamber. But you do see you do see some, uh, uh, shall we say, some uh, uh, some retaliation, uh, some 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 getting back. Uh, for instance, uh, one of the and down on the south side in Coweta, in, on the Coweta uh, Fayette County line, you have a a state law, lawmaker uh, who's been uh, two state uh, lawmakers who have been drawn into the same district. They're both Republican, but one uh, one is a is 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 not too kind to David Ralston, the House Speaker, and uh, and uh, he, he's in for a world of hurt uh, come the primary. Yeah. Um, yes, that's right. It's not always, uh, you know, uh, the Democrats battling the Republicans. It's sometimes a moment to get revenge on a political enemy within your own party. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back with more on Political Rewind. Uh, before we continue with our conversation, I do want to make note of the fact that on Thursday, Mr. Galloway, you will be entered into the Atlanta Press Club Hall of Fame, a richly, richly deserved honor, and uh, we're thrilled for you. You I've said this many times, in addition to the long, uh, wonderful work you did for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, you are the longest-standing member of this panel. You are the first person that I asked to be a part of our show seven plus, almost seven and a half years ago. And uh, you continue to be on top of political news. And uh, and I'm very excited that you're going to be getting this honor on Thursday. Congratulations, Jim. 
thank you very much. I will. It, it will be a struggle, but I will get through it. I promise. <laughs> All right. Um, Emma Hurt, you wrote an interesting piece for Axios um, in which you uh, the headline says, why a Purdue-Kemp primary would be unprecedented in Georgia politics. And by that, of course, you're talking about David Purdue, who uh, there's still some talk that he really might take on Brian Kemp in the Republican primary for governor. Tell us what your the points were that you made in that piece. There is still some talk, and there's always talk, right? Everyone's like, I'm hearing this, I'm hearing that throughout all political rumors in, in Georgia. But um, the reason why I wrote the story was because the fact that this is even talk is really remarkable. If, you, if I had told you this was happening a year ago, that this was going to happen, nobody would have believed me. An incumbent governor challenged, like, the talk of him being challenged in this really um, major way by someone who already committed to supporting him, actually, in the election. And I think what what um, became clear and is clear if you're talking to Republicans in Georgia is there's really kind of two schools of thought about it. There's that, you know, a Purdue primary challenge, Purdue would win, and Purdue would be much better suited to win in November than Kemp because Purdue brings in the Trump base that Kemp might have lost in the last year. And then the reverse uh, argument is that this is a total disaster and this infighting will spell a democratic victory for sure. And um, only Mr. Purdue and a handful of other people um, know exactly what he's thinking. But one thing that sticks in my mind about past coverage of Mr. Purdue is that, you know, he was a business executive, right? And he actually told me in an interview that he first considered running for governor and the idea of it being an executive position seemed to make more sense given his resume being one in a hundred in the Senate, very different ball game. And, and that's come up several times in conversations with people as, um, you know, a, a factor as you think about why Mr. Purdue would think this might, this might work. Um, I think a quote that is worth mentioning from your piece is you talked to a Kemp ally who spoke on condition of anonymity, who said, quote, a Purdue primary campaign against the most conservative governor in the history of our state would be one enormous, ego-driven, in-kind contribution to Stacey Abrams' campaign uh, for governor. And, uh, uh, Stephen, there are people who are comparing this possibility to what happened when uh, Doug Collins uh, and... and um, uh, and what's her name? Got into that. We're uh, running Leffler. against each other. <laughs> Kelly Leffler were running and left Raphael Warnock, Stephen, untouched until uh, he got the chance to run against uh, 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 Kelly Leffler. Yeah, I mean, in you have to consider the the Trump effect. Trump has tried to find somebody to primary Brian Kemp, the first lifelong Republican governor since Reconstruction in Georgia. Um, uh, so conservative that his ads in the election uh, raise a lot of eyebrows for shotguns and explosions and different things. You know, Brian Kemp is not a rhino, not a Republican in name only. But Donald Trump wants to find somebody who is a Donald Trump Republican. And so uh, the beatdown that would have to happen from one or both of these candidates to try to win in a primary electorate is going to damage whoever would win that primary in the general election in a state that is uh, politically shifting and demographically shifting 
And yeah, it might even be such an in-kind donation that it might not even need to be Stacey Abrams to be the nominee to win as a Democrat. Jim? Yeah, uh, first of all, the, the pushback by the Kemp uh, Kemp camp has been tremendous. And I think one reason for that is just the mere talk of this is damaging to the republic uh, to to a republican governor who's who's really dependent on his on his base turning out the other thing i would say is is should david Perdue do this what he what he does he he guarantees that the the 2020 election remains a hot republican topic uh through through may through the may primary uh i mean uh Stephen was talking earlier in the show uh, uh about uh, uh about the opportunity that that republicans have to move away from that and 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 to, to dig into some real policy issues uh a purdue kemp battle would make sure that that uh that trump's uh uh defeat stays stays at the top of the uh the gop mind Leroy? Imagine uh, that we've got this primary going on at the same time a Fulton County grand jury uh, has convened and perhaps there's a pending trial where the president of the United States for everything that happened in the election uh, would actually be facing trial. So, you know, you, you start thinking about where, where this could go. And if you think Georgia is already the, the, the center of the political universe, well, let that happen. So there is a, yeah. another thing that's out there looming. Uh, with uh, the possibility that uh, the, pre- the former president of the United States could be charged in Fulton County. Okay. Uh, Stephen, I'm going to try to get in a couple other subjects quickly because we're running out of time. First of all, I want to talk about you. What? Give us a headline from what Bride Raffensberg had to say to you when you interviewed him. I think that podcast is up at NPR Politics now too, right? Yeah. So we, we talked to Brad Raffensperger about his new book, Integrity Counts. Um, it is written much like Brad Raffensperger is a person, very uh, analytical and somewhat dry and engineer-like. But he kind of lays out a little bit of a pathway about the problems he sees with election administration, but also with Republicans and the party. And we've talked to a number of people that are concerned that uh, trying to put people in positions of the vote counting, like secretary of state races, that it could end up backfiring because you could have people that are, you know, that don't respect elections, trying to meddle with things and meddle with the rule of law. But also you could have candidates like, uh, he says, Jody Heiss, who's the Trump endorsed challenger here. You could end up having candidates that are too extreme and end up further accelerating Democratic victories in places like Georgia because people are turned off from these types of candidates that are so focused on 2020. So it's a good conversation. He does share a little bit in his book about the personal struggles he was dealing with, with people sending him death threats and his family threats and things. And so uh, it was an interesting read. Okay, thank you for that. Again, that pod, that's on NPR Politics Podcast. You contributed that to that podcast. Uh, Emma, on our show on Friday, Michael Thurman was asked whether he would consider running for governor if Stacey Abrams chooses not to. And uh, we were all, uh, Patricia Murphy and I especially, were a little surprised that he essentially hedged his bets and made it clear that, yeah, he just might think about getting into a race like that. Which, of course, raises the bigger question is, is Stacey Abrams, in fact, going to run for this job? And if so, isn't this a moment when Democrats have been on the ropes that they could use her energetically uh, announcing for the for the post? 
Yeah, I think a lot of Democrats would would say that they would much prefer to have um, Stacey Abrams already hitting the ground running uh, campaigning. But, you know, it it seems that she has not decided yet, or at least has, is not interested in making it clear at this point, even if she has decided. But I will say that, you know, it's it is evident that Abrams has has made herself such a force in national democratic politics, a fundraising force in particular, that she, as she did with Senator Warnock, might very well be able to apply that force onto another candidate if she were to decide that this is not going to be her race. Yeah, it would be interesting. She and Thurman have not been great political cohorts, so it would be interesting if how she would work if she decided not to get in and if he did. Jim, there's an, you know, what Thurman's argument is, is that right now the mood of Georgia is much more uh, inclined to be interested in a moderate candidate rather than a progressive like Stacey Abrams. And in a weird way, this reminds me of the primary battle in 2018 between Stacey Abrams and Stacey Evans. Right, right. Well, what you have to remember, there's a there's a generational difference between M- Michael Thurman, DeKalb County CEO, and Stacey Abrams. Uh, Thurman, I think, is going to turn 70 next next year. Uh, I don't I, I think Abrams is in her, in, still in her mid 40s. Uh, but but more than the personalities involved, it is it is the approach uh, to to uh, to Georgia politics that is different. Uh, it, Michael Thurman has been that 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 person who runs toward the center. Abrams uh, in 2018 and 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 2020 showed that it may not absolutely be necessary, uh, and and so that'll be uh, interesting to see see what plays out here. Yeah, we're running out of time, but I will say that was the brilliance of her campaign strategy. She said, "We don't the yellow dog Democrat coalition, Democratic coalition of you know like." Uh, rural Democrats and suburban uh, 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 independents could still win a victory. She said, no, 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 we have to move uh, to the left. And it was an enormously successful effort, even though she fell short of winning. The question is, is Michael Thurman right? It's time that Democrats, after the debacle in Virginia, to see that they'd better be more careful about their progressive uh, tendencies. So we'll watch that as uh, as uh, the story moves forward, but we're completely out of time today. Emma Hurt, thanks. It was a real pleasure to have you on Political Rewind with us. Leroy Chapman, Stephen Fowler, Jim Galloway, always love having all of you on as well. We're back, of course, with a new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Please wear your mask when you're at the supermarket, when you're at a restaurant uh, not eating. Um, Go get a flu shot if you haven't had it yet. And, of course, the COVID booster is available for all you old folks like me. Take care, everybody.